0: It's remarkable how this group has changed over the years. Uh, the average age is down, I guess, how many years, Luke? Ten, fifteen years? Ten years, the average age of people here. My first meeting was in 66, and they were only, uh, at that meeting, LeClaire and Ross King and Luke were there. I don't know whether... Group A was there or not, or oh, Mooney was there, Mooney flew in, there were only about four at that meeting in 66, and there's a whole new ball game now with young doctors, and young people, and I think Luke has to get the credit for that. Uh, can you come up, Luke, and meet the new people? How many new people did we have last night? Maybe 70? Did anyone count them? We'll count them later on, but it is sure going. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Well,
1: there you go. the hell with Clark,
2: huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you got ten minutes. Hi, everybody. I'm Luke, and I'm an alcoholic. You all know Perry Ayers. He uh, he belongs to this group, and he's out on the errand of mercy this weekend and couldn't be here. But he was in Youngstown last week. And Perry's the sort of, he and Chuck Hoyter spark-plugging the impaired physicians program in Ohio. And Perry was in Youngstown last week, and he told me I could tell you this lovely story of his, and I think I should let you have it. We were discussing the genetic relationship and the hereditary factor in alcoholism, and he said uh, he said they're in, in studying genetics. They've crossbred uh, a donkey and a Bermuda onion, <clears throat> and, and uh, the result that they got was a, a Bermuda onion with big ears and a piece of acid that'll bring tears to your eyes. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not going to spend time telling you much of my story, Uh, my uh, beginnings, so far as my own alcoholism, are pretty well known to most of you, and if you haven't heard my stomach tube story, there's at least 50 people in the room that can tell you, those who are new. So I'll uh, spare you that, and I'll spare you a lot of the details. I certainly want to welcome this fine group of new people here. And uh, I hope you are able to have rub off on you some of the warmth and and friendship and love and pity and all of the things which we need uh, going through this uh, indoctrination, this recovery, uh, which is nothing short of a miracle in every one of us who are here. I had been...
2: Oh sure. Well, that, that's the V8 mic, If you can talk to me, yeah. Get a little closer. To, can, you get it in can
1: you hear me in the back? No, no you can't. Well, oh, I'm sorry. I was uh, I was afraid I was over over talking. Um, my own my own alcoholism
2: uh,
1: began many years ago. I was. Uh, I'm sure was an alcoholic in, uh, in college and all through medical school, <laughs> I learned to live with it and I, I uh, had earned my living as a musician uh, before going to college and going to medical school. I, in college and medical school I did a little bootlegging, uh, I played, belonged to the union, My life was pretty much uh, as the rest of yours has been in in drinking. Uh, I learned to to use alcohol, whiskey, uh, like you use high-test gas. Uh, it It was one of those things that buoyed me up when I was tired. I thought I played better piano when I was half in the bag. Uh, I, I lean heavily on alcohol and yet it never occurred to me that I not for many, many years at least it didn't occur to me in medical school for many years that I could easily become addicted or that I was in fact addicted finally so that the uh, the development of tolerance the development of of adjustment to an alcohol addiction which we all went through. I mean, there's no limp heads in this crowd. Anybody who got through medical school has got a lot of guts. They've got a lot of determination and willpower. There's nothing wrong with your willpower if you can get through medical school and get through the training that, that we did. And yet there are a lot of us here who uh, had no no power over alcohol uh, once we became addicted and uh, therefore our lives were changed those of us who are not here those who, of us who have died by the wayside as a result of the disease would not only fill this room but uh, would fill the block and I'm talking just about our colleagues in medicine the number that we see die each year is appalling uh, Whose deaths certainly are contributed, if not totally the result of alcoholism. Uh, to this group, which we're really interested in, and, and I, I want to tell you a little about the meeting. Actually, I'm up here to, to plug the meeting in Detroit. I'm up here to plug IDAA. Uh, I, I went to my first IDAA meeting in 1957. I'd been sober a year and uh, it was the, I'd first heard about the meeting, and the meeting was held in Denver, and uh, I think for the first time at that meeting, I I was willing to really accept the fact that I was an alcoholic, and I was able to accept the fact that it was a disease, and I didn't need to be ashamed of it. That was really the thing that, that happened that was worthwhile. Uh, I, I had... I'd, meetings like like doctors in local in local communities. Uh, we're popular among the AA groups around locally, and uh, they're after us to talk. And uh, so I did. I, I talked, but I was talking about you people and not about me. And uh, uh, it took a long time for me to really be able to put myself on a level with the everyday ordinary alcoholic I went to the meeting in Denver, I came home I was uh, thrilled and and happy and excited about about being a part of this organization I was busy as a bee in those days, I taped everything I made tape recordings of all the meetings and so on I fell air to the Secretaryship about 1960 when the when the group nearly fell apart. The man who had uh, preceded me in this job died suddenly and unexpectedly, and the mailing list of IDH consisted of a grandma's cookie recipe box, a little uh, three by five cards uh, with something over a hundred names, I think, at that time, and. Uh, so from there, with the help of a lot of good people, a lot of industrious helpers who've put on meetings from year to year, we've built the IDAA to about, it's between 1,500 and 2,000 mailing list at the present time. Uh, so that those of you who are new will understand, uh, International Doctors and in Alcoholics Anonymous is, it's just another AA group. We don't have any bylaws or any constitution or any organization really. We've got a checking account. Two or three of you all are co-signed on it with me. And uh, I have uh, all of this massive literature that's been accumulated over the years. Every application for a new member into the organization I've kept pretty much so that I have a lot of, so I have a lot of material recorded, a lot of information, plus this uh, set of addressograph plates. Well, other groups have grown up. What we are actually, I think, is a fellowship of alcoholic doctors. Now, international doctors in AA happens to be the the group that I have the the list on, and I send the mailings and so forth. And we're so listed in the Directory of the General Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous. has a, it's called a special group. Now these other groups uh, uh, are part of the fellowship. There's a group in Chicago. There's a group in Cincinnati. There's groups in the South, North Carolina, and uh, uh, West Coast. Have California has groups. These are healthy. These are healthy growths and developments. Because these people, just as you've already heard, are are uh, not only organizing meetings of IDAA in their communities by using this nucleus of men to put the put the meeting on, but they're having regional meetings of their own. Uh, the meeting that that is coming up in in Detroit this summer, I want to tell you a little about Dick Moore, and we'll tell you more. Some of you, I'm sure many of you, have had mailings with a return card to make a reservation at the hotel. We're in a small, uh, small Sheraton hotel in the environs of Detroit. It's about 20-25 minutes from the airport by limousine. We have a particularly attractive setup so far as rates in, uh, in the rooms and so forth. We made the contract a couple of years ago, and uh, we're. We'll practically take over the hotel. It's a nice, roomy, comfortable place. I've been there. The food's excellent. And uh, so I think we have promise of an excellent meeting. The group in Detroit have been working hard. They've got some surprises. Uh, his honor, the Mr. Chairman, Wilbur M., of Washington, D.C., is going to be the banquet speaker. He's an interesting and exciting fellow, and... Uh, very fine. AA, gives a good talk. He'll he'll speak at the banquet. We have some other treats and uh, interesting features going uh, along with the program. There, the group up there are arranging some trips on uh, on Friday. Half of the group will will go to to the Brett Brighton Hospital for medical scientific sessions. Uh, in which, if you wish, if you're interested in Category 1 points for re-licensing and so on, uh, you can uh, secure these. Uh, anyone who doesn't care anything about points will certainly profit from what you will learn from the authorities who, who are going to talk to you there at uh, Brighton. Half the group goes in the morning and the other half in the afternoon. The other group, the other group who are not in the scientific session of, at Brighton, We'll have a choice of a trip uh, through the Dearborn Museum or the uh, one of the Ford Motor plants. Transportation will be arranged by by bus, and uh, these things should be a fine adjunct to the meeting. On si- on Saturday, the meeting will be on the usual format of an AA meeting throughout with a banquet and the speaker. Sunday morning will be God as I understand Him. Uh, type of, of meeting in the usual in the usual format. Usually the, the meeting will conclude at noon. I think Dick's going to talk to you more about that. Uh, I'll be mailing another communication out to, I hope everyone out, I intend to have the mailing list uh, with your consent, get a, a list of those of you who are, who are new here coming to an AA meeting for the first time, a professional meeting. Uh, I'll mail you information so that you can make advance reservations in, in the, uh, Sheraton Hotel in, uh, actually it's Southfield, a suburb of Detroit. Uh, it's easy to get to and it's, uh, uh, it's no great problem. If you'll mail in advance though, some idea about what you would like to take in in, in the way of these, uh, of these special things on, on Friday, it will help the group up there uh, considerably. Now you'll get a card to return uh, in connection with that. I don't dare take any more time because uh, because I must have some respect for the gentleman to follow me. I couldn't help but think this morning hearing about the smoking thing. I, I'm no big uh, banner waver or Drum beater in the connection with smoking. Except that I was smoking two and a half packs a day in 1959, using between two and a half and three packs. I wasn't smoking them. I had three going at the same time, one on my desk and one in the lab and one in the toilet at the office. I mean, I, I had a cigarette every place. Speaking about compulsive, uh, when I quit drinking, I, uh, I increased my smoking, if that were possible. So uh, I didn't know what to do about it. I I struggled with that for a while, just like I had done with the alcohol. And it so happened that I was getting some heart symptoms and some chest pain. And uh, my partner in the office uh, said, well, I want you to go in the hospital and get some exercise tests and uh, look you over a little more carefully because I don't like the sound of this thing. So we had a governor in Ohio that I thoroughly tested. He was a Democrat that I didn't back. And uh, I was thoroughly disappointed with everything he had done. And about this time, they added a two-cent tax on cigarettes. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I wrote an article for the grapevine on this subject uh, the subject was use your resentments. Uh, so when, when I was going to the hospital to be admitted, I left my lighter. Of course, I also resented my wife. It took quite a while to get over that after I quit drinking. She being an alcoholic and through the same program. When I was ready to go to the hospital, I laid my lighter on the, on my dresser. I laid the cigarettes. I said, now I'm going in the hospital for study and I'm going to quit smoking. I'll thank you not to bring any cigarettes. I'll thank you not to smoke in my room while I'm there. I'm going to spite that son of a bitch in Detroit, or in Columbus, the governor. He's put this extra tax on and he's trying to kill me anyway with these damn cigarettes. So I'm going to quit. So I went into the hospital with my back up, mad, and and I I, had psyched myself into a into a state of mind in which I could quit smoking to spite somebody. Now this is another way to do things, and by God it worked. I've never smoked since. <laughs> it's nice to have a few minutes to talk to you, and I hope I see you all in Detroit. Thanks much. You
2: need
0: anything you forgot? You can say tonight. All right. Okay. Uh, Next, I'd like to introduce a man that I met several years ago in North Carolina. Uh, He is a sober psychiatrist, and of course, at that time, they were hard to find. Uh, uh, He has spearheaded the uh, Disabled Doctors program in North Carolina. He treats alcoholics. He, uh, He is... Good AA down there, and I think he's one of the reasons that we now have eight or ten up here from North Carolina instead of the usual one that we used to have. Uh, I'd like to call on Ted Clark.
3: Hi, I'm Ted Clark, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. Hi, y'all. That's a Boston accent that went to North Carolina. I don't want to tell all of my alcohol story up here, but I would like being a psychiatrist to talk a little bit about fear and a little bit about serenity. And to do that, I have to go back to uh, my childhood, you know, psychiatrists are always getting you back to your childhood, so I, I feel that uh, it's appropriate for me to tell you a little bit about that. Uh, my life was unmanageable, and I was powerless over alcohol. I was born in a family in Boston uh, with a couple of older brothers, a mother and father. Uh, there was plenty of money, there were... Help wandering all over the house when they weren't quitting. Uh, and all in all, it was a normy normal, happy childhood. Uh, you know, I was a normal, happy kid. Uh, few, few little problems here and there. I, uh, bit my nails, you know, and, uh, woke up screaming at night, uh, because they were fighting in the next room. My father was Uh, very often intoxicated and beating up on my mother. But, uh, oh, and I, you know, I wet the bed, you know, and a few little things like that. But, uh, uh, you know, sort of the type of thing that, uh, nobody ever talked about. And, and that was sort of the deal. Nobody, I, you know, my dad didn't talk about me wetting the bed and I didn't talk about him getting drunk, you know, and, uh, and nobody in the family did talk about the alcohol problem, and I believe that this is uh typical in families where alcohol or drugs are a problem, and that is that everybody talks around it, but nobody talks uh to the issue particularly and that's certainly the way it was uh, in our family the next the next morning, I would see the uh father. Uh, that I loved dearly and who used to do a lot of things with me. And if he had not been drinking, we'd go out early and he'd show me how to do things and he'd be a wonderful father. If he had been drinking, uh, he'd have one of those viruses and he'd sleep in. And, and if anything was ever said about it, uh, my mother might say, well, he's got a lot on his mind, you know. Uh, and, and that's all that ever was said of it. I had a uh, an oldest brother uh, who uh hid in his room and did stamp collections and built model airplanes and locked his door and got overweight. Uh, I had a second brother who was the acting out type of rebel. Uh, the, you know, he was going to create a diversion. He was, he was going to get kicked out of enough, uh, boarding schools and so forth that, that my parents wouldn't have, uh, you know, time to drink or be fighting amongst themselves. Uh, uh that, you know, that doesn't Cure alcoholism, but it, it sure gives them something to talk about while they're fighting. Uh, uh I took the other tack. As I say, I, you know, I was probably a fearful, timid kid, uh, overly, uh, complying and, uh, setting out to be, uh, the, the type of child who was, uh, you know, gonna be the perfect kid and make the family so uh proud of him that they were going to stop drinking and uh, uh you know reunite the family. Well, that doesn't work out either. Uh I I don't know what uh would have cured alcoholism at that time. I tried several things. That was the uh tack I took along with a very early form of uh trying to uh, do something about my dad's drinking, which was emptying his booze bottles. So, you know, I emptied his scotch bottles and filled them up with water and he never said anything about that either. He must have known who dumped his booze out, and uh, you know, I sort of knew he knew, but uh, again, nothing was ever said about it. And this was this was the way it was in our family. Uh wasn't that we didn't have access to psychiatrists? Uh, guess who went to the see the psychiatrist? Uh, the brother that was doing the rebelling and getting kicked out of school. He. You know, but I found out one thing, and that is you can't treat your old man's drinking problem by uh, having one of the children go to a child psychiatrist. So that doesn't uh, that doesn't do it. Uh, nor did nor did it do it for my oldest brother to be hiding in his room. Nor did did it do it for me to try and be the the complying child. So I grew up in a in a household that was normal. By day, really, and, uh, you know, really crazy by night. And that was, uh, a lot of fear and a lot of terror. And things got really bad in those fights. So bad that my brothers and I would literally go up and hide under the eaves. And that was my introduction to alcohol. Um uh, the age of 14, I can remember learning how to drive an automobile. I had been given instructions by my father, who, as I say, I had the utmost love and respect for. And then at the age of 14, he took me to a hockey game, and he got drunk. And he was trying to drive home, and he nearly drove into the reservoir in Boston. And at that time, they were beginning to uh, guard the reservoir, and a soldier came out and said, well, he can't stop here. So they were going to call the cops on my father, and he said, well, look, can you drive the car? And I said, yeah. And so I, you know, he could see that I really couldn't drive the car, but he got it going. He got it in third gear, the, uh, and I drove home. And that was my first drive in an automobile. And, uh, during that time, uh, this father who I love so dearly was whacking me across the face and he was saying, you're lovely, but you're lousy, you know. And the, the ambivalence was there. They hitting the, You know, the hitting the kids and so forth. And it was shortly thereafter that I volunteered to go off to boarding school. And I went off to boarding school and I got good grades and I became quite competitive and, uh, uh, I learned to join in in sports and so forth. But always this haunting fear was there, always the nagging fear. And uh, the fear of being unacceptable, the fear that things weren't right. sort of the fear that you were going to be the kid on the ball team that nobody would choose, you know, that uh, when they were choosing sides for the tag football or something. So when I went into hockey, I played goalie. And uh, that was because I couldn't skate very well, you know. But if you play goalie, they all take shots at you. And uh, I was perfectly willing to stand there with my padded uh, uniform on and let people take shots at me just to be, you know, just to be one of the kids and stuff like that. And I... and uh, Uh, Because of uh, wetting the bed earlier, I never got out to go to other people's houses, uh, except uh, with the secret of uh, carrying along a rubber sheet or something like that, you know. And I never had any kids over to my house because of the drinking problem. So embarrassment, fear, shame, you know, were with me through my childhood. And if you want to know how really crazy I was, I decided at the age of 12 to go into psychiatry and... (laughs) You know, there's got to be something wrong uh with you and with the with the family. You got to be, you know, you got to be a timid and fearful kid to want to be doing something like that just because your older brother comes home with a book of Freud. Freud made a lot of sense to me at, at that time, and particularly I didn't know he was on cocaine either. You know, <laughs> but now he makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I just want to tell you all that I skipped grades, and I, uh, you know. Was doing very well academically, and I went into the Navy. Uh, I got drafted just before I uh, was in medical school at the age of 18, and and so uh, all of a sudden I was derailed in terms of my uh, program for compensating for being a, a fearful kid, you know. And I I, w- I went into the Navy, and it was at this point that uh, I ran across a brother of mine who was. Uh, this was the acting out. Uh, brother that got kicked out of everything and he was out of money naturally and, uh, which was characteristic and I was just out of the hospital with rheumatic fever so I supplied the money for some, uh, southern comfort and he introduced me to drinking. Well, if you've heard where I was coming from, you can see that I probably wasn't about to win the mental health for the ward for the year anyways. And, uh, you know, being a fearful person I think that booze, uh, I think you could all see where booze would sort of fit very nicely into this equation. I'm not saying that that my underlying personality is what caused me to drink or caused me to be an alcoholic, but I do think to be an alcoholic is sort of nice if it does something for you. And it certainly did something for me, because when I began to drink, uh, after I got past drinking hard liquor, which made me pass out too quickly, uh, I began to find it on beer, I was a lot of the things that I wasn't, uh, when I was, uh, sober. In other words, I could instantly turn from a fearful person into an aggressive person, uh, you know, Luke was saying, you, you know, use your resemblance and so forth, and, and there's a lot to that, you know, the, don't get mad, get even, you know, and all this stuff, and, uh, and I, I found that uh, I was very assertive and a very sure-fisted person and uh, all sorts of things when I was drinking that I was not uh, when I was uh, sober. Sober, I was trying very hard to compensate at great personal cost of energy, you might say. I was a workaholic, an overachiever, all sorts of things that uh, you know have a connotation of a high-energy drain on the system. And here I here I found alcohol, and alcohol could put me to the head of the line just like that. I could be anything that I chose to be, and I, you know, uh, charming, suave, sophisticated, you know, all those things. Uh, that's not what other people call me, but that's the way I felt about the situation. And uh, um, and it was in that context that uh, you know that I did my drinking, and I didn't get in trouble with it right away. The closest I ever came to getting in trouble in the Navy was when my original aneurysis, uh, ran into my, uh, drinking problem. And that was at a time when I was in a replacement pool in the Navy, and I was in the upper, upper bunk, okay? And, uh, when I went out to drink for the evening, there was nobody in the bunk underneath me at all. And he didn't know about me, and I didn't know about him. Well, I came in, sloshed to the gills on uh, 3.2 beer or whatever it was, which uh, was in keeping with my ritual personality. And um, uh, I woke up, and lo and behold, somebody had wet my bed.
2: <laughs>
3: and I thought I was all over that, you know. Um, Well, I did what any good alcoholic would do, or any good bedwetter would do, and that is I got up and moved in the middle of the night, and this guy underneath me was sound asleep, and he he never heard me get into the bed, and he never saw me leave, and I moved the mattress and everything like that, and he woke up in the morning, and i got to say that one of the more amusing things that I remember from my drinking was seeing this guy with his bed wet, and he's trying to figure out where it came from, (laughs) and he's looking up on the ceiling and so forth, and he's... Checking his underwear, and he you know they talk about making amends in this program i, I you know i've never found that guy at all.
2: <laughs>
3: but if that fits in with anybody's story here, why let me look me up after this meeting. i went I went back to medical school and uh, you know I, I again uh, did my thing with the academics and so forth and the I curbed the drinking to some extent, but I still was drinking, uh, much too much and, uh, uh, you know, I was up for a beer party all the time. Uh, so much and so that it was the first chink in the armor of my academics. I, you know, I always bring my, uh, Phi Beta Kappa key along to show where my brains went to and, uh, uh, so Luke won't get after me about the time and so forth. But, uh, when I graduated from Dartmouth College, Uh, Instead of getting summa cum laude, I missed it by .01 of a decimal point or some ridiculous like that. And, and being, uh, well, you know what I did. I tore up my diploma. So, uh, this was the beginning of the alcoholic type of, uh, personality degeneration. You know, now the resentments, the anger, the, the blaming other people, uh, you know, why did that guy not give me an A or this, that, or the other. And, and the beginning, Deterioration of the uh, the workaholic type of personality that I had sort of compensated for all my fears and timidity with that I was going to you know do well and have all these skills and be the type of person that I was afraid I wasn't you know successful brilliant charming suave and sophisticated. Uh, I went down to Harvard Medical School and uh, at Harvard Medical School. It was Bill can attest. We we had to go over to the tank at the Boston City Hospital and I and and I really detested what these people were doing to themselves. I could, you know, smell their livers frying and uh they're getting DTs and so forth and I'd be so put out with that that I'd go out at the end of the evening and I'd get drunk. And and I point that out because uh I think that that's one important insanity that we all have to have. Uh and that is the denial, the, the inability to see what is happening to other people, patients of ours, that, that could possibly happen, uh, to ourselves. And about, uh, that time, or in the residency in psychiatry, there's, there's something else I need to point out, and that is I went to a couple of AA meetings. And at one of these meetings, they had the, uh, the famous 20 questions, and they were sort of booting that around, and, uh, you know, you've all seen this test, if you can Answer three of them yes, you probably got trouble. And if you can answer four of them yes, you definitely got trouble. And I thought, well, you know, this is ridiculous. I can answer half of these things yes myself. So I I I figured these people are fanatics. They you know they're uh, obviously burnout alcoholics, and they want to put this test together to make it seem like uh, everybody's got a drinking problem, and they they're just a bunch of Killjoy. So uh, right away, I practiced another form of, uh, of deception. I, I was able to, uh, you know, write off the one program in the world that could have saved me right then and there in, in medical school. I'm, I'm so glad to see young doctors coming in because at the time that uh, I was doing this, I could have come in. I could have quit right then. I was well on the uh, radar scope. Of clinical alcoholism, and i didn't know it and uh you know I was fully prepared to write off uh discount the only program that would have helped me, so I didn't do that, and I went on to smash automobiles and and i then I went on to get frightened and now now I was back into a a period in my life that that I had escaped from successfully as a as a child you know I'd sort of Made this marginal adjustment during boarding school and college and all that nice stuff, and uh, now it was all coming unraveled because I was getting the shakes in the morning, and I I could cure these by drinking, but I I uh, if I didn't have a morning drink, I felt shaky and uncomfortable, and uh, began to get the nameless fears, the anxiety attacks in the morning, and I I uh, they lasted all day. I had to avoid staff meetings and I couldn't get up and present a, a, a paper and I couldn't supervise or, or teach the residents or you know, all the things that I was supposed to be doing. And, uh, consequently, um, it was, life was becoming a nightmare to me when I was not drinking. The only times I was comfortable was when I was drinking. And I dreaded going into my office in the morning. Because you cannot uh, practice psychiatry if you're shaking worse than your patients, you know. <laughs> and you can't really go in there uh, drunk, or at least I wasn't prepared to do that at this time. Later on, yes, but not not at that time. But at any rate, uh, uh, a lot of you have heard me say, and I'll, I'll just say it again very briefly, and that is that I got into the samples, and we've heard about all the different pills. And that's uh, they all said that uh, they the psychiatrist could use them to treat the refractory alcoholic and and I did just that. I took those pills, and I waited eagerly for the mailman to come around uh, and uh, While all the other doctors in Boston were uh, reading their morning mail, I was eating mine and uh, <laughs> and uh, And I tested out all these pills, and I carefully titrated my system to be comfortable enough. Uh, during the day to make it through to, uh, doing what I like. That was just a maintenance dose during the day. What I really liked to do was to get high. I wanted to get back this feeling of power, this, uh, you know, get rid of the fear. And I'd get rid of the fear and then I'd, I'd feel a little float on these pills and then I'd say, well that's not good enough. I wanna, I wanna be on top of things again. I wanna really, you know, feel like I'm going some in life and like I'm enjoying things. I don't want to just break even. So I'd overcompensate, and I'd load amphetamines or booze onto the uh, tranquilizers or onto the sleeping pills with the inevitable results. Uh, again, I won't bore you except to say that I made uh, five ambulance rides without ever seeing the inside of the ambulance. And I guess so they asked my wife if she wanted the siren on or off, you know. Uh, and I would wake up in the intensive care unit, and there'd be this uh, nurse uh, asking me if I knew where I was. And if they're asking you if you know where you are, you're in the wrong place. Believe me. <laughs> you don't have to be a psychiatrist and you don't you know, have to figure that out. But, uh, it, it couldn't, it couldn't go on like that forever. And, uh, you know, eventually I was uh, losing driver's licenses and, and marriages and, and jobs and, you know, the whole, uh, thing came to a, uh, a point of escalation and, and it was, uh, no longer just, uh, whether I could drink. It was a matter of whether I was going to survive even, you know. And, uh, and finally an Episcopal minister came to my house and he said, Ted, he said, would you consider going to AA? And I said, yeah. And I would have gone at that time to, uh, uh, Starlight Farms up in Connecticut, I guess. The Uh, But I I never got there. I fell down the stairs and went one last trip into the emergency room and so forth, into the intensive care unit. And this was nine years ago. And in the middle of winter, a little fellow from AA by the name of Bob Arms up in Massachusetts, he came in and he stood at the foot of my bed. And I was a shaking, fearful, terrified a mess of humanity strapped down in the bed with the side rails up. And the nurses in there later told my wife that when this man from AA talked to me and asked me if I had a problem and if I wanted to do anything about it, that I calmed down. And I remember that. And I remember that. There's something that is transmitted from the recovering alcoholic at the foot of the bed To the sick alcoholic in the bed, that was my first taste of serenity, the first taste of this absence of terror and fear. It was more than just relief. It was, you know, something which is part of the spiritual part of this program, the miracle of this program. He left, and I told him that uh, you know that I was going to go to a meeting with him when I got out of there. But of course, in the, in the meantime, I was uh, slated for the uh, convulsions and the DTS, and I I went into them the next day or so and and ride up to the state hospital where they strapped me down in the violent ward uh, for several days with the uh, hallucinations and DTS and convulsions. And I guess I nearly died up there. And as a matter of fact, I thought I was dead. You know, a lot of people say they came into this program just before they died. I, I thought I had died, and I thought they had me uh, strapped down like that so that when the rigor mortis set in, that I'd fit flat in the box. You know, and, you know we've heard a little bit about depression. Well, that's a depressing thought, you know, uh, it really is. Uh, it was at that time that um, uh, I first ran into the... Uh, the Hessians. I, I, you know, I didn't have pink elephants. I had millions of Hessians, red coats. So they call them down here lobster banks or what have you. They, uh, there were just millions of them. I don't know whether it was a, a, a premature case of the bicentennial DTs or what it was, but, but at any rate, they, they were very real to me and they're still around. Uh, here are the little fellows here. They're all over the place. Uh, uh, now you can buy those for 78 cents a piece at FAO Schwartz so you can drink for 20 years and take a few pills and you can get them that way. I would advise the, uh, the, uh, former method. Uh, at that point the superintendent of the hospital came around and he cut me out of the straps and he stood me up and, uh, I was supported by an aide on either side and he said, Ted, you know where you are? And I, I looked at him and I, I said, at a medical convention? And, uh, and he said, you flunk. And I, I think that that's important for me because the thing is that it, it was at that point that the last of the, the arrogance, the pride, the, the needing to do it all myself, uh, you know, went away. And, and at that point only, was I ready to surrender, was I ready to be helped by other people. I came home and my wife had to take me to some meetings because I didn't have any driver's license and, and I, I went to meetings every day, every, every night, and um, she went with me. And this is another one of the miracles of AA as far as I'm concerned. That, uh, she came in there with me and we started making friends together because I had no friends left. Uh, you know, I'd weeded them all out, you know, for one reason or another. They'd make remarks about my drinking and I'd be sensitive and I'd tell them where to head in and, uh, you know, you weed out enough friends and finally you become a weedy. And that's, uh, so I know a lot of people say, well, how, how much time do you spend with your old friends and how much with your new friends? They were all new friends as far as I was concerned. The old ones were gone. In the first year, I, I, I was very sensitive about a lot of things, and I worried about what people thought and so forth, but I came to the meetings every night, and this was a wonderful thing because the minute I got into the AA meetings, uh, they immediately surrounded me with love just just for being sober and making it through another day. And I, I think this is really important, particularly uh, for me, the way I felt. And this was, I began to... Feel, experience a, uh, a decrease in this fear, and the fear was replaced not by just relief, but it was replaced with a, a good feeling, and sort of the pink cloud that you hear about. And, and both my wife and I began to go to meetings all the time, and uh, would stay afterwards and made new friends, and would go, it uh, would fill up the car, and would go to other meetings, and with 12 step people, we started taking trips with other AA couples, and and this whole life began to make some sense to me. Uh, then I moved down to North Carolina uh, three years ago, and I've become, uh, for the first time, I became aware, as I mentioned uh, earlier in this program, of IDAA. I, I, uh, Jamie Caraway got me on a, a speaking program that uh, uh, that Bill was at. And it was the first time I heard about IDAA, and I got active in that, and I've been enjoying those meetings ever since. But it's with a it's with a newfound freedom because now the fear has been replaced by an honesty. I no longer have the secret shame or embarrassment. There isn't anything I can't talk to you people about. Uh, there's there's honesty in my life. There's an openness and, and a willingness to to change. And these were things that I heard from the very beginning time that I was in in AA. These were stressed to me. But it's only uh, as I've gone on in this program that these things have really begun to sink in to the point where I'm now beginning to get back not to working just on the on the drinking part of things. I don't want to ever drink. Again, obviously, I, there's no way in the world I can drink. I'm powerless over that. But the thing is, i that's not the only thing I'm powerless over. I have to change uh, my life. I have to change my character defects. I have to keep working on them uh, in this program in order to uh, replace the original fears, the little scared kid, to have any sense of serenity, to have any sense of calm, any sense of real accomplishment rather than all the phony accomplishment of being a workaholic and an overachiever, uh, this can all be provided by this program and the, the total love and support that uh, comes from uh, the people in, in the program. And also at the same time, if you if you are an open person and an honest person, for the first time in your life you can begin to sense that the God of uh, of my understanding, of your understanding, can reach through to you and that you can become a a channel for God to work through and this this in itself uh, again produces a sense of serenity that that you feel sometimes you're just driving along and you're at a certain form of peace with yourself and with your world and you know with your AA group and all your friends and you just know that there's a, a difference a real basic change in your life and not the sort of serenity that came from abuse of chemicals or anything like that but a real uh peace and knowledge that you're in the right place at the right time and my being here today is being in the in the right place at the right time with the right people people who understand people who make me feel like a real person and no longer a scared little kid one thing about nearly dying of a disease and that is it makes you proud to be alive, it makes you happy, it it makes life a little more poignant. And I can go to work every day, working up in the detox, working with my alcohol patients. You know, knowing that I have uh, more at that day than just the work itself, because my whole life is at risk. All I have to do is forget who I am or where I came from, and I could be carried up there on my shutter. You know, instead of working up there, they'd be carrying me up there, and it would be back to the Northampton State Hospital. And I like to think about that uh, once in a while, and I get a little chuckle out of it. It's sort of like the clothes I have on my back. You know, I have a nice coat here from a men's store in Charlotte, and I went down to Roots here, and uh, in Morristown, I got this nice tie and button down Oxford and so forth. But underneath it all, I got this... This T-shirt, this old T-shirt, and it's stenciled Northampton State Hospital, (laughs) and and I I don't want to ever forget that (laughs) because that's how it is, sports fans. If we don't if we don't remember where we've been, we can go right back there again, or worse. But I would just like to say this, that that I do feel that this is a whole new life. It's not just a way of putting the cork in the bottle. And if it isn't a whole new life for you, as you gradually improve with your sobriety, then you're not getting your share of this program. So, with the help of all you people, and the love of this program, and the grace of God, maybe I can... Live to be the type of family person and have the practice of medicine that God meant me to have in the first place. Thank you.
2: Uh,
0: We'll close in just a second. I might add here uh, thank you, Ted. Uh, uh, If any of our boys know they can help drive, please let Bill know, and uh, this is a hard job he has, but we've got a good, reliable surgeon doing it, and I'm sure he'll do it uh The meeting <laughs> is going to start in about four minutes or five minutes. We like to give you a little break in between, but uh not much and if we can shut uh, we got to close in the usual manner here uh Our
2: Father, why in heaven